Welcome to the Wholehearted Eating Podcast, where non-diet nutrition, weight-inclusive care, and integrative health collide. We're your hosts, Dana Montes and Christina Hoyt, licensed integrative clinical nutritionists and body image coaches. And we believe you deserve to have a joyful relationship with food in your body, even if you have a chronic health condition or symptoms that just won't quit. On this show, together and with our guests, we're bringing the real talk, no BS5, with tangible tools to help you pursue health and wellness without obsession or restriction. Remember our disclaimer, this podcast is meant for general information purposes only and should not be taken as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hey friends, and welcome back to the Wholehearted Eating Podcast. It's Dana, in case you couldn't tell. On today's episode, we have an amazing guest who we are really excited to share with you. It is Dr. Carolyn Ross, who is a doctor who's board certified in preventative medicine and addiction medicine, and she specializes in working with patients from an integrative medicine approach incorporating trauma history, eating disorders, body image, and clinical symptoms. Before we get there, just a couple of updates slash questions for you. So first, if you are listening to this when the show drops at the end of October, next week, Christina and I are going to be doing an episode to help you prepare for the upcoming diet culture craziness that is going to be the holiday season this year. So we know this can be a really hard time, whether we have been coming off a pandemic or not, or in the middle of a pandemic, but the holidays are always a really hard time if you struggle with your body image, if your relationship with food, because of all of the talk and activities that surround food and potentially comments that come up around food and body image. So we want to do the best we can to give you all some advice and also answer your questions about anything that might be coming up. So send us your questions in either Instagram to either me or Christina, or you can email us both at hello at wholeheartedeating.com. Plus, if you have any feedback about the show, topics you would love to hear about, people you would love to hear on the show that for us to interview, let us know. The inbox is always open. Also, if you have been loving the show, we would love you forever if you would leave us a rating and or review wherever you listen to your podcast. So this doesn't have to be on the Apple podcast store, although that does help us get into the earbuds of more people. But you can do it on Spotify. You can do it on Stitcher. I listen to podcasts on Overcast, which is an app on your phone that allows you to make playlists. Wherever you listen, it would be much appreciated. Now, second thing, quick update slash recommendations because Christine is not here for this intro today. I'm going to give you two things to check out. So if you're into Netflix and you would like something that's going to completely allow you to unplug and kind of distract yourself and pretend you're in a tropical paradise or something like that. There's a series called The World's Best Vacation Spots on Netflix, which I highly recommend. Definitely transports you to different places around the world and shows you all different areas and then different kinds of vacation spots from budget-friendly tree houses in Bali all the way up to luxury yachts and villas and all of that. So I have found that very fun. And then the second recommendation, which is for uh, all my nerds out there, maybe just me, I don't know, is the Swish and Flick podcasts. As you all know, I'm a huge Harry Potter fan and nerd, and Swish and Flick is run by four ladies who have been going chapter by chapter from the beginning of the series since before my podcast started. I think they started the summer of 2017. If you want to listen to Harry Potter plus pop culture references and just a general really good time from four ladies who are just wonderful, highly recommend Swish and Flick. 
And the reason I wanted to bring up these recommendations today is because today's episode is a little bit of a heavier podcast. So on today's episode with Dr. Ross, we're going to be discussing the impact of intergenerational trauma and adverse childhood experiences on inflammation, disease, and the development of disordered eating, emotional eating, binge eating, and eating disorders. We also highly encourage you to check out the new book that Dr. Ross contributed to, which is Treating Black Women with Eating Disorders, A Clinician's Guide. And with the help and contributions of many, many clinicians and tons of research, the book is digging into how racism and intergenerational trauma can contribute to the development of body image struggles, disordered eating, and eating disorders in black women and what clinicians can do to meet those patients where they are and help them truly heal. So without any further ado, we're going to get into the interview with Dr. Ross. Dr. Ross, thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast today. We're really excited to hear your unique perspective on something that is very near and dear to our clinician hearts and then also personal hearts as well. So we wanted to start with, you have a really interesting family history that plays into what you do today. Clearly, entrepreneurship and medicine are both in your blood. So could you share with us a little bit more about your family history, your story, and how you got into doing the work that you're doing now? Sure. Well, I do come from a line of physicians. My grandfather was a doctor in a small town in Texas, and he, uh, I, I spent a lot of time at their house growing up uh, most summers and actually lived with them for two, two years when I was in, I think, middle school. And so um, I spent a lot of time in his medical office, and that eventually led to me becoming a doctor myself. In terms of um, specializing in eating disorders and addictions, I think the biggest thing, the biggest influence probably was from my family as well, that um, I had a lot of addictions in my family and also eating disorders in the family. Um, I started out my career working in women's health. And then from women's health, you know, we know that women are the primary people who have eating disorders or there are more women than men, except um, in general. So that led to an even deeper interest in the eating disorder field. And that's what I eventually specialized in. Um, and we've also found it really rare to find integratively trained practitioners and especially integratively trained physicians uh, working in eating disorders. And we're curious how that evolution happened for you and how you came to specialize in working with body image and eating disorders with an integrative lens. You know, I think like many integrative medicine physicians, I myself had uh, a medical problem that was not well treated in within Western medicine. So in, uh, I think it was 1999, I was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia. And, you know, I went to, and I had at that point been practicing in San Diego for, oh, 15 or more years. And so I was a well-established physician in the community and, you know, had a very large practice, uh, three women's centers that I had opened and so on. So I was well-known in the community, make a long story short. But however, when I went to my colleagues to get help with the symptoms that I was experiencing, which I didn't really understand myself, um, 
you know, often I was told that, it, it, you know, it was all in my head pretty much, or maybe you just, um, maybe you just need to take some time off, et cetera. But that, that wasn't really true. And I understand, you know, that at that time, there wasn't a lot known about chronic fatigue uh, syndrome and fibromyalgia. However, you know, I was struggling and I ended up having to leave my practice for two full years because I was really too sick to, um, you know, to see patients. And that's the first time in my career that I ever had to, you know, stop working. So it was a, it was a scary time and, and it was, you know, a difficult time. I also was a single mom of a six-year-old. So all of that combined led me to search outside of Western medicine. And I started, you know, visiting alternative practitioners that I had met or that people had told me about. And, you know, I, I eventually found two who really helped me a tremendous amount, but it took several years really for me to heal. And through that process, I ended up learning a lot about uh, alternative therapies and, you know, uh, the importance of mental health in terms of my physical health, you know, so there were some traumas from my past that I hadn't dealt with that probably uh, contributed to my getting sick. And so over those three or four years, I ended up, um, you know, seeing energy healers, acupuncturists, uh, Phoenix Rising practitioner, uh, Phoenix Rising Yoga practitioner, and so on. And as within that four-year period, I decided to uh, become more educated in integrative medicine myself, and I was accepted into the fellowship in integrative medicine in at Dr. Andrew Wiles' program in at the University of Arizona. And so that really was the beginning of my own personal education. Uh, on, on a more deeper level. Honestly, you know, in my women's centers, uh, we had acupuncturists, we had therapists, we had um, energy healers, we, we had many homeopathists and so on. So I already knew quite a bit, uh, but this was more of an academic education because I wanted to be able to practice from this point of view rather than just, um, you know, hiring people to work in my, my women's center. Yeah. And it, it sounds like during that time, part of your evolution as a clinician also stemmed from the realization during this time that there may have been events or traumas in your past or even intergenerational traumas that you mentioned could have contributed to you getting sick, right? So as integrative practitioners, we always are trying to focus on getting to the root cause, you know, not just treating at a symptom level, right? Can you talk a little bit more about how childhood adversity or cultural or intergenerational trauma can contribute or be a major root cause of binge eating, emotional eating, and eating disorders? Yes. um, I think the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study was the first wake-up call in medicine to this link between early childhood adversity or early childhood trauma and later adult mental illness and also uh, physical illness. And 
honestly, it took probably a decade before people started paying attention to that. I remember because the study started in San Diego, where I was practicing at the time. And I was, you know, just kind of gobsmacked when I read the study. And I was like, wow, what's happening here? Uh, but it was a good 10 years before the general medical community started actually giving any credence to that study. And at present, the Centers for Disease Control is, um, you know, working with Kaiser Permanente to run the study. But what was so important about that study, and they looked at things like having um, a divorced, being in a divorced family, having a parent with mental illness or with a substance use disorder, um, being having experienced sexual abuse or uh, physical or emotional abuse. And there was, you know, a few, a few others, uh, family member who was incarcerated and so on. And what they were able to see is that the higher the number of adverse childhood experiences that a person had, the higher their risk for everything from suicide attempts to depression, anxiety, um, to you know, heart disease, cancer, diabetes, and no one really could figure out like, how does that happen? Like, how does having sexual abuse put you at higher risk for diabetes? It just didn't seem to make sense. But over time, as we've come to understand that um, this whole notion that trauma causes what we call toxic stress, and toxic stress then can actually cause epigenetic changes, which are changes in the expression of genes, for example, for cancer or substance use disorders, um, et cetera. And with those epigenetic changes, then that leads to these higher risk for depression, anxiety, and over 40 medical conditions. So I think that was the beginning of the research that is now moving forward. I, uh, the original research didn't look at uh, eating disorders. Uh, they looked at, um, you know, but subsequent research has definitely linked trauma to eating disorders. And in my own private practice and, the, and my online program for binge eating disorder, I would say that 90 plus percent of the patients that I see have a history of pretty significant trauma. I mean, a shocking amount of trauma. Um, and that that was the beginning really of their binge eating, for example. It's really fascinating. And um, I also am thinking how profound to look into that and then think about the epigenetics that would impact and lead to, you know, in a lot of ways and in a lot of circles thought of as preventative conditions, right? Like diabetes and heart disease and all these things. And thinking about it from an integrative perspective and an integrative medicine perspective, how do you work with your patients um, on this root cause, if that is the, the root cause potential, while also supporting them to help them get to the point where maybe they can reduce the likelihood of turning on that epigenetics for themselves? Yeah, I've always enjoyed really working as part of a team. And I think eating disorders are so complex that it uh, we really need to be in a team approach in order to make any progress. And so starting from when I used to work at Sierra Tucson as the head of their eating disorder program, and then all the way up to the present day, 
where I have this online program for binge eating disorder, um, I work with other practitioners. And in my anchor program, I, I work with two dietitians. And so they help with the, um, you know, the nutritional support. But the biggest part of, of what I do is helping, first of all, educate people about that connection. Because most of the patients that I see, if I talk to them about, did you have any trauma? They usually respond of, oh, well, that was so long ago. Or, you know, yeah, I saw a therapist, you know, when I was uh, in college once or twice and, and that's all over. And they don't really understand this connection that I, I just mentioned between trauma as the root cause of their eating disorder or their food and body image issues. And so first of all, it's education. And then second of all, it's also education about the fact that um, diets don't fix trauma. <laughs> you know, when you, when you think about how insane it is that so many of our patients who are spending, you know, millions of, the diet industry is 60 plus billion dollar industry. And yet the underlying problem is not size, it's not the number on the scale. That is, it is this root cause, which is trauma. Then it's really, you know, unbelievable that we are putting people on diets for something that diets will only exacerbate. Um, because actually, the eating behaviors are a response to the trauma. And so it's a solution. So you, if you take away someone's solution, then you know that that's not going to turn out well. And even if a person, you know, women are strong and they'll guts it through a diet, but then after the, you know, three months or whatever is up, that, then that they go back to what they know works for that trauma effect. And that is, you know, the binging or the food obsessions or the body body image obsession. Right. And then a big uh, like obstacle that our clients and your patients, I'm sure, run into is that if we then try and talk about this, you know, non-diet or an anti-diet approach, it feels like the clinician is clinician is taking away their tool, their coping mechanism to deal with the trauma, right? So while on the one hand, we can very clearly say diets don't fix trauma, just doing an anti-diet approach can also not, it's not going to fix the trauma, right? We have to go so deep, so much deeper than that and work on the body image struggles that have resulted from the trauma exposure. And I love how you say also in a bunch of articles that you've written for Psychology Today, and you've talked about this on your podcast as well, is it's not just, you know, just quote unquote, trauma that has occurred within your lifetime and that has happened to you, but it's cultural trauma and it's intergenerational trauma and things that have happened to you and within your culture for generations past. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about race-based yes, trauma. definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I did talk in my um, TED, TEDx Pleasant Grove talk about intergenerational trauma, which I think is something that most people, if they think about, it makes sense to them. Because if you are struggling with alcohol use disorder, for example, and then you look in your family tree and you can see that 
your father and your grandfather, or maybe just your grandfather and great-grandfather even, uh, had alcohol use disorder, then it kind of makes sense that, well, part of that's genetic, but also we know that adult children of alcoholics have a whole laundry list, they call it, of characteristics that are the effects of living with a parent who has alcohol use disorder. And, this, and so when we look at our family trees, we also want to look at eating issues and eating attitudes and um, the things that parents say about their bodies. You know, we, and it's not just women, it's not just mothers, it's uh, men too who, um, oh my goodness, I have always been appalled at when, when I hear some of my patients talk about things that their family members have said to them about their size. It's, I mean, it's really, truly shocking. I remember long ago, I had a, a young woman who uh, was diagnosed with bulimia and she said that her father used to call her Miss Piggy. And he used to joke about that on a regular basis. And I just, it felt like, you know, a knife to my heart to hear that an innocent young person was taunted in that way by a family member. But we know that family and friends are the number one cause of weight stigma. And then the medical profession is the number two cause. So those are two arenas that I hear over and over about whether a pediatrician tells a mother, your daughter is in the, you know, overweight or obese category. And, you know, by, by those charts that God knows who, why we even use those charts anymore, but, you know, <laughs> but that, that then leads to them being put on a diet when they were maybe five years old. And, you don't you know, a child is in a massive growth phase from five to, you know, 12 or puberty and uh, restricting what they eat is, is uh, dangerous and also dangerous for their mental health. And so that, that intergenerational trauma can start with, um, you know, maybe mother had been sexually abused and she herself then turned to food as a way to cope. And then her daughter then listens to her constantly talking about, you know, how fat she is or how big her thighs are or sees her going on diet after diet after diet. And then that has an impact on the child. So even though the child may have not experienced any trauma themselves, um, they can be you know, exposed to this trauma from their parents and grandparents. Grandparents are, not, are also not innocent in this whole scenario. So uh, it's, you know, it's, I've heard many mothers say to me, but, you know, it's better for my child if they could lose weight because then, you know, they won't be bullied at school. And what about their health and all of this? And, and so we've been indoctrinated, indoctrinated in our culture into thinking that being thin is first morally superior. And that's, you know, something that I think when we talk about um, race, we know that you know, in the white community, um, way back in the early 19th century, uh, black bodies were considered savage, overly sexual, 
and um, white bodies were considered to be the moral equivalent, you know, more, um, more moralistic because, you know, if they were thinner. And so that dynamic has been set up and has continued to this day um, that many people feel that, you know, being thin makes them superior. And so that all of those dynamics are within our culture. And I think it's important that we recognize them and be aware of it and also recognize that size is not, uh, has nothing to do with morality. Uh, it has to do with these root causes and also whatever small contribution genetics or more importantly, epigenetics plays in this, um, in this arena. Absolutely. Um, I, it, this whole conversation kind of leads me to ask about your book that you contributed to as well, the Treating Black Women with Eating Disorders, The Clinician's Guide. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about how this plays into that. Yeah, for the past five years, I've been speaking on the topic of treating Black women with eating disorders. And when you look at what little research there is, um, the incidence or prevalence of eating disorders in the Black community is the same as it is in the white or Latinx community. And yet many Black women go undiagnosed because you know clinicians do not believe that Black women uh, can get eating disorders. There's also been a lot of misconceptions about um, body image acceptance in the Black community that, um, you know, there's, you know, you look at some of the rap songs and the hip hop culture, and it's all about, you know, the curvy figure, which uh, was used as kind of a, a, a thinking that, well, Black, the Black community accepts the curvy body and therefore black women aren't worried about being thin. Uh, first of all, that has changed dramatically, even in hip hop culture, there's now, uh, you know, more, you're seeing more and more, just like you see colorism in hip hop culture where lighter skinned black women are more likely to be shown in these, in these hip hop videos. You also see changes in size preference now with the thinner figure being more likely to be shown in hip hop culture. So again, the black community has, uh, you know, has acculturated to white standards within America and no longer has the same standards that maybe were brought with them with us from Africa. And, you know, for example, I, I was interviewed by um, someone who was first generation, her parents were from Africa and she was born in America. And she was really torn because her mother was always saying to her, you're beautiful just the way you are. You don't, you know, you don't need to lose weight. You look great. And yet her friends were all dieting. And so she was like, well, which way should I go? I mean, people tell me in America that if I don't lose weight, I'm not going to be healthy. And yet you know, the African part of me says, well, why can't I look this way? So I think that's something that is, you know, is evolving and we have different body image standards from the different parts of the African diaspora. But overall, you know, there is, um, you know, if you look at beyond just the thin ideal, that root cause being trauma, we know that Black and Latinx children are more exposed to traumatic experiences than 
the white children or Asian children. So just starting from the get-go, we have more trauma. And then taking us out into the, you know, the culture of America, which we're all, what I say, swimming in an ocean of systemic racism. So, um, you know, Black women are exposed to microaggressions on a daily basis, to other experiences of discrimination in the workplace and uh, in the grocery store and so on. So starting with that childhood trauma and then the ongoing race-based traumatic stress, those are also contributing factors to the development of eating disorders in Black women. So in terms of the book, though, after you know, speaking for some time on this topic, two of my colleagues uh, who edited the book um, invited me to write a chapter in that book. And that book is a great resource. It's really the only resource if you want to understand uh, how to work with women of color, black women who have eating disorders. And it goes from asking the hard questions like how to be culturally um, curious uh, how to have cultural humility. And also my chapter talks a lot about intergenerational and historical trauma and its impact on the development of eating disorders. So it's a wonderful, wonderful resource that's available um, to clinicians who, you know, will be more and more, I think, seeing Black women with eating disorders. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really important for all of us to be educated on this topic. I mean, should be required reading, I think, for all <laughs> white clinicians, especially, right? Because well, you know, we we, we did ask that IADEP make it required reading. They have made it suggested reading instead. Um, however, we were able to um, put together a, uh, a a video presentation that is required to, to get certified through the International Eating Disorder Professionals Association. Um, Paula Gayfield Edwards and I did a video uh, that talks about these issues and talks about the book and 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 that is required viewing. So hopefully it will become the book will become required reading at some point. Let's hope so. I guess slow progress is better than no progress, right? <laughs> Oh my, I don't know. Sometimes it's very frustrating. I don't, I mean, I can understand your frustration because I can't imagine one, why is this not, if it's required listening, why isn't it requ required reading? Because the reading is where you're going to get all of the nuance. And two, if we're, if we have the research that shows that adverse childhood experiences make us more susceptible to having eating disorders and we also draw the line of oh black children and latina and latina x children are more susceptible to trauma then wouldn't we then be able to draw the line of saying hey they're really susceptible to having eating disorders and why as clinicians and as a community are we not doing what we need to do to understand how this works, how to ask the hard questions, how to have those conversations, and how to provide them with the support that they need in order to actually treat the root cause of of their mm -hmm. eating disorder? Yeah. It's just un unbelievable to yeah. me. It's a great. It's a great question, Christina. <laughs> Do you have I an do answer not for have me? an answer. I wish that I did. <laughs> I mean, I have an answer. I think one because it makes what too much sense, and two because yeah. the dietetics and government's dietary guidelines are so incredibly whitewashed 
that yeah. it would take a whole, I mean, years and years and years of interventions and God forbid actually bringing people of color into the leadership of the Academy of Nutrition yeah. and Dietetics and making it more accessible to people of color to actually get into dietetics programs, right? I mean, to get there and to make something like that actually required, I think is going to require an entire structural overhaul and an admission that, yeah, the entire guidelines that they have been teaching in dietetics and even in our nutrition programs, right? We like to think of ourselves yeah. as more integrative. It is totally whitewashed. And you can see Absolutely. that in the way that things are taught in the assumption that cultural foods are deemed unhealthy, right? And then the assumption that people in the, uh, you know, especially the Latinx and the black communities are unhealthy because they're eating their cultural foods. And if only they ate white people foods, they would be healthier. But it's just, it's so frustrating. <laughs> yeah, but you're right. And I think and we also know that training for psychologists and social workers is equally um, ignorant of any kind of cultural competency. So, and given that there's you know a low number of trained black professionals in this arena, it's it's really challenging to find help for for clients who are people of color or BIPOC. And what I've heard from other um... Black dietitians and nutritionists as well is they also similar to the woman that you were talking about who's this you know first generation her parents came over from Africa and she's kind of having this like culture shock of in my culture I feel I'm getting the messages that I don't need to lose weight and I am healthy and I am beautiful and then in American whitewashed culture all my friends are dieting and trying to shrink, shrink themselves into oblivion you're kind of in the middle of what do I do here? I want to be accepted and I want to fit in, but I also don't want to go against my cultural and intergenerational learnings. Dietitians that I've heard from have said it's also kind of a culture shock and a being stuck in the middle feeling for them because they're learning from their dietetics or their nutrition programs that all these white people foods are healthier. So then they are believing because there's only research behind that, right? So if you go from an evidence-based approach from the research that exists and you ignore the cultural foods and things that have been working for thousands of years to keep people healthy, yeah. then you're caught in this middle of, if I go with what I'm taught, then I'm going against my cultural norms and what my community knows. What are you going to bring in, you know, whitewashed foods to cultural communities and just say, oh, this is the way to get healthy. They're going to laugh in your face. So then while you could be or why they want to be that bridge between, you know, I am finally a part of the one hurdle down. I'm finally part of the Academy of Nutritional Dietetics. I've gotten through the curriculum yes, and right. everything. <laughs> there's then this block of weight. But, but then you have to teach yourself how to counsel patients who come from uh, BIPOC communities. And I think that that is, you know, part of the challenge, but it's a challenge that's, you know, worth taking on and one patient at a time, you know, there, there are some really great resources available that I've put in some of my talks, um, 
you know, groups who are putting together ancestral diet pyramids, and they're, therefore they're highlighting African diaspora type foods and or Latinx foods for the Latinx food pyramid. And so I think that there are, there are resources available now that maybe 20 years ago weren't available uh, to clinicians and dietitians to use. And I think that's, that's a good start. That's a good place to start. Um, I believe that, you know, when we talk about intuitive eating, it is an intuitive eating of the food you tell me is intuitive for me. <laughs> it's intuitive eating of the food that I intuitively want to eat. Like, honestly, when I sit down to eating beans and rice or black eyed peas and rice and have collard greens on the side, my body just wants that so badly. And it, it feels like, oh yeah, this is what I need. But you know, not all black women, see I was raised in the South, but not all black women find those foods to be the, their, you know, ancestral match. There may be some who come from the Caribbean or from Africa, and they have other foods that are the draw for them. But being, if you're able to be able to show people how those foods are healthy for them and how you can make them healthy if they're not, um, then that's what really needs to happen. Yeah. It's just, really, I think one of the most frustrating things for me is that it's just so unfortunate that you get over this hurdle of, okay, I'm finally here, but now I have to do some unlearning of the place that yeah. I wanted to get to be in the first place in order to help the people that I came here to originally help. Yeah. Well, you know, we're all in that this position. I think the last two years have certainly highlighted that, you know, the uh, unfortunate uh, focus on weight as a risk factor for COVID is another example of how obsessed we are in this country and in medicine with weight being uh, an indicator of health, of good health, instead of recognizing that the, inter the intergenerational trauma of Black communities has led to those communities having all of the risk factors for COVID, you know, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, autoimmune diseases, and so on. So, you know, size or the number on the scale is not really the thing we should be highlighting. We should be talking about how systemic racism has led to, and, and we have, we do have research on this, the communities uh, in the South that had higher uh, populations of slaves are the ones that still to this day have very, very poor health. And so, you know, we can see these effects, but we don't want to talk about that. We just want to talk about, oh, well, those people should be losing weight. And then they, then they wouldn't get COVID. They'd still get COVID because of the trauma that they've experienced and how it's impacted their epigenetics. So, that we have a long way to go, but at least I think there's more awareness, um, you know, from the over the past two years, and hopefully that will continue. Thank you so much. I 
There's so many things that we could spinball off and keep talking and keep talking and go deeper and deeper. Um, but we want to be thoughtful of your time too. And I am curious if there was one thing that you'd love for our listeners to leave with today, what you would really like that to be. Yeah, I, I think for me, one of the things I always uh, tell my clients slash patients is uh, that it's not about the food. We put so much focus on, you know, eat this, don't eat that. This food's good. That that food's not good. And it's really not about the food. It's it's about how we use food. And I think once you start to ask yourself, how am I using food uh, instead of just for nourishment or for enjoyment or for, you know, treating myself, am I using food on a daily basis to deal with other issues that would be best dealt with in a different way. So that's what I would like to leave them with. And I also wanted to let you know that I'm offering a free copy of my latest book, the Food Addiction Recovery Workbook to your listeners. Um, I pay for the book. They do have to pay for postage, but I pay for the book. So if they're interested in getting that free copy, they can just go to my website uh, Carolyn Ross, MD. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for your work. You actually beat me to the punch. I was going to say, tell everybody where they can find you and your courses oh. and your books and everything, because it's not just one book that you have, it's multiple books that you have. I do. Yes, I do. I was, I was busy for a while there. <laughs> that's a good way to put it. <laughs> Thank you for, so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. We're so grateful to have you. 